1: You don't want it, you don't need it, but you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. What is this? And Scherzer's not happy about this. Well, just after that last out, Scherzer took his hat off and rubbed the back of his head with his hand. Maybe he had an itch, he's sweating a lot. And now Davey Martinez is coming out. And, and I think they want to check Scherzer again. Scherzer just threw his hat down on the ground. Said, go ahead, check him check everything this is a little gamesmanship here by Girardi no doubt Davey Martinez is not happy Max has taken off his belt now and Max Max is saying I got nothing he's holding his hands up in surrender and Davey is really livid right now and now he's giving it to Girardi and Girardi's Girardi's going to come out Davey Martinez is challenging Girardi and Girardi's coming out to the top step and Max is steamed right now and that was last night what a game. One of the more dramatic Nats games of the year. By the way, they won again, 3-2. to Brad Hand loaded up the bases in the bottom of the ninth, got out of it, and the Nats have won 8-9. of nine. They're tied for second now in the National League East. Four games behind the Mets, tied with the Braves and Phillies after the 3-2 win over Philadelphia. Eric Fetty, who hasn't given up an earned run in his last three performances, He pitches this afternoon, but last night's game was not necessarily about the final score. It was about what happened during the game with Max Scherzer. And so I am thrilled to have on the show with me today my good friend Albert Galdi. Al Galdi from the Al Galdi podcast, which you can get wherever you get a podcast. He's doing an excellent job with the podcast And he's always been my go-to when it comes to baseball anyway, especially the stuff that Tommy just sort of, you know, shoes away like it's not (laughs) super important to him. Um, But, you know, before we get to what happened last night, first of all, let everybody know how you're doing. Um, I know a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are also listening to yours, um, which is great. Um, But how's it going so far?
2: Yeah, going well. I appreciate it, man. Uh, doing the podcast, the Al Galdi podcast. New episodes for which are out uh, Monday through Friday by five a.m. So it's out early in the morning. Uh, new show every weekday, and we do a ton on the Washington football team, but also a bunch on the Nationals and the Capitals and the Wizards and the Terps and the Hoyas and you know all the local teams. So it's been a lot of fun. It's gotten a lot of great feedback. We've had a lot of very good guests, and you're right. I get a lot of people who say, I listen to your pod and Sheehan's pod. So a lot of double dippers in that regard, but yeah. nothing wrong with that. So no. I appreciate you having me
1: on. Well, that's what we want to do. We want to have them listening to both, especially when uh, football season begins. But Galdi, really at this station forever, was everybody's go to when it came to, you know, baseball, especially, you know, the strategy of baseball and the things that are going on in the sport. And before we get to, to what happened last night, I really want to talk about just what's gone on here over the last week and, you know, the rules that have been, I think, in place but are now going to be enforced and why they're being enforced. um, Give everybody who's not completely familiar – with what's happened, with the you know the sticky um, you know substances and the spin rates, and you know what that's meant to pitchers' advantages over hitters this season and and in recent years, tell everybody why baseball did what they did.
2: So these rules have been on the books forever. The reason baseball all of a sudden woke up to this is really twofold: a offense is down again. And you're not seeing runs scored. If you look across baseball, not that batting average is a great stat to look at, but batting averages for a lot of guys are way low. I know the Nationals have gotten a lot of attention for their struggles offensively this season. but The truth is they're far from the only team that's had offensive struggles. So baseball feels a need to juice up the offense. But the other thing is, and this is almost always the case when it comes to baseball, a bunch of people wrote articles about this being a problem. This is exactly what happened with the PED stuff. Tom Verducci in May 2002 wrote a big article for Sports Illustrated, Ken Kamanidy, and that's truly what launched the PED crackdown in MLB. Along the same lines, you've had it with the Houston Astros stealing scandal. The Athletic wrote a big article not that long ago. That's what blew the lid off the uh, Astros cheating scandal. And now with this sticky stuff stuff. There was a recent SI.com article. Others have written articles. And so baseball gets back into a corner of, oh, yeah, there is a problem. And, oh, yeah, people are writing stuff about this. I guess we ought to do something. And so baseball says, well, we have these existing rules. Why don't we try to enforce them? But the problem here is that MLB is doing this in season. This wasn't something that was addressed right. in the offseason. This now all of a sudden in the middle of June, baseball says, yeah, starting with games on June 21st, we're going to enhance enforcement of these rules. There are all kinds of pitfalls, as we saw in Game 1 for the Nationals, as they began their portion of the season with these enhanced rules. And so it's a complete mess. You have the players already ripping Manfred over this. You have already things coming up, like Joe Girardi using this as gamesmanship. So it's a real problem. And I think everyone kind of saw this coming when these enhanced enforcements were announced.
1: Al, what these new... um... The, these new sticky substances, and I don't know how new they are, but all, you know, the the spider tack and the, the grip dip tack that's, you know, Pelican something uh, d- sticky. What's working so much better now than before, which has brought this to everybody's attention?
2: I think it's people getting more experience with using it. The spider tack thing, people being able to manipulate it when it comes to something like spin rate. See, spin rate really has blossomed into something of true importance in recent years. And this is a function of the analytics. Nobody used to ever really look at spin rate. I mean, I think conceptually, pitchers knew what spin rate was, but it wasn't the kind of thing that was tracked. Now it's almost as important as velocity. it's, like, it's not just as, as, um, It doesn't just matter how fast you throw a baseball. It's what the baseball is doing while it's traveling from your hand to the catcher's mid. And so spin rate is really important. And if you can generate massive spin rate, if you can generate great movement on your pitches, if you can do what's called tunneling your pitches, where all of your release points are the same, but depending on the pitcher throwing the baseball does something totally different, the ramifications of that are huge. And there are guys who have been able to master this and change the courses of their careers. Like Trevor Bauer is a good example of this. Trevor Bauer wasn't this great pitcher, Trevor Bauer has become a great pitcher because he's really applied himself when it comes to this stuff. And he's actually been one of the more vocal people ripping baseball over these enhanced enforcements. But I think it has to do with, again, this uh, heightened importance of spin rate and also, you know, guys developing. You know, It's almost like these concoctions that people are coming up with, like people combine spider tack with suntan lotion or, you know, they combine their sweat with the spider tack. You know, everyone's got something different. There was a clubhouse manager for the opposing clubhouse with the Angels who recently got fired who actually named names and one of the names he named was Max Scherzer which is interesting but this guy was cooking up his own potion that he was handing out to players so like the PED stuff everyone's kind of got their own formula but again I think this comes back to offense is way down and baseball was like hey we ought to do something and so that's what cause
1: all this i just want to learn more about this so is it more about the potion as you just described or is it more about pitchers in recent years understanding you know more technically how important spin rate is and they're throwing the ball with more of it because, you know, and I, I read this a few weeks ago, a fastball with a higher spin rate, as an example, you know, appears to have um, a rising sort of look to it for the hitter. And, and then with change-ups, like a lower spin rate, I think, is more important because it creates more, uh, more movement. Is it an understanding of what spin rate does, or is it the potions that they're trying to outlaw?
2: No, it's the understanding. You know, Because the potions, I think it's only so far you can go with the potions. I think it's this understanding of, hey, if you want to really take your game as a pitcher to another level, the spin rate stuff is where it's at. And what you see now in baseball is analytics, it's no longer just something the Oakland A's do or something the Tampa Bay Rays do. Everybody is in on this now. And it is so much in arms race, you really can't overstate it. And so as you have all these front offices now, with all these, you know, 20-somethings at Ivy League schools, and these front offices have beefed up their analytics staffs, everyone's looking for that competitive advantage. And so the spin rate stuff has become a really big thing. And, it, you know, it's not just spin rate. I'm kind of oversimplifying it when I say that, but that's like a big part of it. And so, this, and so also what you have too is players are more open to this stuff, you know, because there was a resistance from players to a lot of this stuff for a while. And now as you know, younger players come into the game, they see, hey, this analytics stuff works. There are countless examples now of people changing their careers by getting in on this stuff and learning how to do this stuff better. And so I think that has been a driving force behind a lot of this.
1: So if it's more that and less about these substances, are we going to see different results with the enforcement of these rules?
2: I don't know. Uh, I don't think MLB, though, I think MLB said we have to do something. I think, you know, logically speaking, they say, well, if we literally don't allow anything other than the rosin bag, which is what MLB is trying to do here, that can only help batters from a standpoint of pitchers not being able to manipulate baseballs as pitchers have been able to do. But there are unintended consequences with this, and that's one of the things that Max Scherzer talked about on Tuesday night because. There's been this belief of you have to let pitchers use something so that they can better control baseball. Max Scherzer talked about the plate appearance of Alec Bohm in the middle of the game on Tuesday night, where Max nearly beamed Bohm in the head.
1: Because it slipped.
2: And Max, yeah, right, and that was Max's point. Now, there's there's a, sort of a tightrope you have to walk here of, well, you want to allow pitchers perhaps to use something but not too much of something to where they can manipulate baseball to where they just totally dominate batters. So what is that middle ground? We don't know. This is part of why you do this in the offseason and not in the middle of June. You know, I think there's a belief of maybe there's some substance agreed upon by the teams and the players that you can say, hey, this is a permitted substance you can use. Because it seems like you need to let guys use something more than just the rosin bag. But you obviously can't let people use, you know, Vaseline plus suntan lotion plus uh, spider tack plus everything else to come up with these weirdo ways of throwing baseballs. And there's another thing, too, here, and that is everyone has known that this has been a thing for years. If you go on YouTube, search or Molina uh, Ball sticks to chest protector in 2017. <laughs> there was a Cubs there was a Cubs Cardinals game in which a pitch literally stuck to the chest protector oh of the Cardinals yadi Yadier Molina, and nobody wanted to talk about this.
1: Who threw the? You know, pitch? The
2: announcers made. Uh, I forget the pitcher. I'd have to look okay. it up. Go when ahead. I, it was it was a Cardinals Cubs game. It was April 2017, and the ball sticks to Molina's chest protector. And, you know, people make jokes about it, and they go, ha, 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 how did that happen? And then nobody did anything about it. Nobody thought about hmm. Why is that? Why would a baseball stick to a catcher's chest protector? Is this a miracle of physics? Or maybe just maybe was there a bunch of stuff on the baseball that caused it to do that? Three years earlier, April 2014, Yankees-Red Sox, Michael Pineda, who was with the Yankees at the time, got ejected for literally having a swab of pine tar on the right side of his neck got suspended for 10 days. You never heard anything about that after that. Why did he have all this pine tar on his neck? What would be the reason for that? Again, it kind of just got buried. Baseball looked the other way. This is exactly what happened with the PEDs, and now you essentially have this uh, day of reckoning here, and it's a problem. It's a real mess.
1: A ros- rosin isn't enough, is what you're saying, but they've got to find some sort of middle ground from what they've been using that his, that is increasing spin rates to a point where batting average, whatever you think about that as a measurement, is at one of its lowest um, you know, rate uh, averages in, in forever. And we're seeing you know incredible pitching performances, incredible ERAs, et cetera. Will they get to a middle ground? and why why did they do this? In the middle of the season, it seems like very few sports would implement this thing or start to enforce something like this in the middle of a season to sort of change the direction of the season if it does that. And as you said, you know, you don't know, they don't know. Um, but what is the middle ground and why did they do it in the middle of the season?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there is the middle ground and I think they will find the middle ground. I just don't know that they'll find it right now in the middle of June, like, I think this is probably something you should do in the off season, which by the way is another conversation because there is a looming CBA Armageddon with baseball. The owners hate the players, the players hate the owners, the players crush Manfred all the time. The toxicity that exists between the owners and the players association, this is reaching like, you know, nineteen ninety four Bud C. McDonald fear level. So I don't know that they can agree on anything right now, which is maybe part of the issue here too. That Mob was like, we don't want to deal with these people. We know we can just go ahead and implement this increased enforcement. So we'll go ahead and do that. And if they want to complain, that's their problem. But of course, like we said, there are unintended consequences here. I, I would like to think, though, they can reach the middle ground. The other thing, too, I think about is, you know, these umpires are being put in near impossible spots. Umpires have a lot to do as it is. Now that they have to act as, you know, cops and chemists, and mid-game inspect pitchers multiple times. I mean, do the umpires know what to look for? If you detect sticky stuff on a pitcher's arm, like, is that sweat? Is that spider tack? Like, what is that? Is that uh, something else that he had to put on his arm? Like, how do you know exactly what you're feeling and touching? How do you know exactly what to be looking for? And the answer is you don't. And so what I wonder about this, too, is, is MLB going to do a thing which is done previously, which is initially there's heightened enforcement, and then like a few weeks later, it's kind of forgotten. A few years ago, MLB made a big deal of enforcing another existing rule, which is called the batter's box rule. You have to keep a foot in the batter's box at all time, you know, with the exception of like multiple potential exceptions. And the point of that was, hey, these games are slow, Speeding they take up. too long. Yeah. yeah, we got to speed this up. Watch a baseball game now. Let me know the next time the batter's box rule is enforced. It isn't enforced. It went bye-bye. Everything regressed right back to the way it had been. And I do wonder about that with this, if for now it's a big thing and a big show, but a few weeks from now it'll kind of be forgotten. We'll see. All
1: right, let's get to what happened last night, but specifically before uh, – or big picture before we get to what happened specifically – what are the rules right now? Are the umpires required to check once, twice, or not at all? Is it based on their discretion? And then what can the opposing manager do to get the umpire to check again, like Joe Girardi did last night? Is that, uh, is that at the umpire's discretion? Can the manager doing it, do it multiple times? What are the rules around this?
2: Yeah, so... Uh, umpires are required to check starting pitchers and release pitchers. The sort of the edict is you want to do it in a way that doesn't interfere with the game. So you really want to do it between innings. And, you know, they say that they can do it quickly and efficiently. Again, we'll see on something like that. Managers can request for checks, but it's not like managers dictate the checks. It's still on the umpires to execute the checks. But the, kind of the gist of it is if you're a starting pitcher, you need to expect to be checked uh, probably at least twice, and maybe even more. The umpires at any moment can check a pitcher for any reason. It, it's on the umpires. They, they sort of have a green light here to do as they want with all this. Uh, you know, they took what Girardi said and said, hey, okay, we'll check it. It's not, I mean, it's not like Girardi asked a bunch of times for Nats pitchers to be checked. It was just that one time. It obviously was strategic. He was doing it to mess with Max, and so the umpires acquiesced, and we got Max uh, trying to take his pants off.
1: Yeah. Is this an un- unintended consequence here that managers will use this as a form of gamesmanship?
2: So what's interesting is that it was already addressed, at least, you know, via a memo of MOB saying you can't do this for gamesmanship purposes. But there's, of course, so much gray area on something like this. Joe Girardi has the plausible deniability of, well, Max kept going to his head on Tuesday night, kept touching his hair on Tuesday night, so I wanted to see that check. And the umpires have to say, well, I mean, we may think this is gamesmanship, but we can't prove that, so we'll go ahead and check it. What's so funny about the Max going to his hair stuff is, he talked about this after the game, the reason he kept going to his hair... No
1: sweat.
2: Right, exactly. He needed sweat because he needed something to help grip the baseball. Which is legal. And it happened... Exactly, but it happened to be a cool night in Philadelphia, and so Max tried to get whatever perspiration he could get from his hair and apply that to the baseball. But Girardi was able to use that as a reason for the umpires to check Max. Of course, Girardi wasn't really trying to check check Max; he was trying to screw with Max. And you know, it seemed to work to at least some extent because Max got angry at
1: Joe. You know, Clayton Kershaw late last night referred back to the Nats Phillies game and said that you know a manager if he you know suspects a pitcher of cheating and asks the umpire to check on it and is wrong there should be some sort of punishment um i, I mean i I don't know how an umpire is going to be asked to determine the difference between gamesmanship and a legitimate request based on a real fear that the pitcher is cheating. I think that seems to be unreasonable. But what seems reasonable to me is one of these suggestions per game by a manager, period, the end of it. They get one.
2: I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, I I think this really has to be something the umpires uh, lord over because there's too much danger. There are too many potential pitfalls of just allowing managers willy-nilly to say, check this guy, check that guy. So, I, I mean, to me, it almost should be like Maybe umpires can suggest it, or excuse me, maybe managers can suggest it, but this really has to be all about the umpires, and it can't just be every time a manager says something, you go ahead and do it. Again, I think it's new to everybody, and I think umpires are trying to figure out how they want to do this, and what's the best way to go about this, and I think part of two what was going on on Tuesday night is Max Scherzer has a role with the Players Association, so Max Scherzer was kind of putting on a show on Tuesday night, before the stuff with Girardi happened, Max made a big deal and got very dramatic the very first time he got checked. And he overreacted, but he overreacted on purpose. But this uh, became a thing on Twitter. End of the bottom of the first, Max gets checked for the first time. It was a very benign check. But he had this look on his face like, you know, he was being probed. He put his hands up in the air. And he did it on purpose, I think. He did it to, to... sort of almost pitch a fit of, look at this. This is so ridiculous. Why is Mob doing this? So, you know, I think there was that going on on Tuesday night as well. Max is a smart guy. He knows that people watch him and follow him. And again, given his role with the Players Association, he wanted to make a statement. And so he reacted the way he reacted the very first time he got checked. And then things really got ramped up the third time off the Girardi request.
1: Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, in, in. If if he's doing it for show, that's fine. I don't have any issue with these rules being enforced and and umpires at their discretion checking. And if baseball pitchers have a problem with that, well – tough um, because the game isn't really super exciting when we're watching you know 16 to 18 strikeouts a night and and no balls hit you know uh, in the in you know out of the infield um, so I, I have no problem with that I do have a problem if these games end up becoming you know managers using gamesmanship to disrupt the rhythm of, of a hot pitcher that doesn't make any sense to me and by the way the goal of speeding up games um, that'll work uh, to To uh, its detriment. I did hear. Um, Mike Rizzo this morning on The Junkies say, and he was very upset with Girardi. He calls him a con artist. Um, and by the way, to me, that would have been quite the the match, Scherzer versus Girardi. Girardi, I don't know how old he is, but he's cut, man. And Scherzer's feisty yeah. as hell. That would have been yeah. a battle. Um, that stared at, I don't know if Max actually wanted any part of Girardi, but whatever. That's beside the point. But Rizzo said, he said, look, they're going to figure this thing out, and it's going to get figured out. We figured out the p. We figured out the COVID thing, which was an absolute disaster when we started. We learned from it, and the league will adapt quickly and will figure out something that becomes, you know, utterly, you know, benign in terms of the number of disruptions. And and it sounds like you think that that's what will happen as well.
2: Yeah, I think we always see this. We certainly saw this with. COVID 19 last year in baseball, yeah. of, you know, so many people were ready to pull the plug on the season and there's no way they could have the season. And actually, no, they ended up having the season and things ended up being just fine. And I think we'll get to that point here. What I think will be interesting, though, is do we get to a, a point of reason here because they actually find a true middle ground or do we get to a point of true reason here because just things go back to the way they were? And we'll see on something like that. With Rizzo, I, I think he and Girardi have a relationship. They're both from the Chicagoland area. So, I, you know, some of that may be Rizzo just trying to needle back at Girardi. I mean, I actually think from a Phillies perspective, what Girardi did, it's kind of smart, right? Mess with Max. Why the heck not? Sure. I mean, is, is it the most moral thing in the world? Maybe not, but who cares? So I get where Girardi was coming from on that. Of course, the issue is that he was allowed to do something like that.
1: Nats won the game 3-2. to two. By the way, Rizzo versus Girardi would be a hell of a match, too, because yeah, Rizzo's, yeah, <laughs> Rizzo's a tough dude, too. Um, so, anyway, netting it out last night, um, Girardi got booted from the game after he came out, after Max stared him down. He got booted. Max ended up pitching five innings. I actually was tuning in to uh, much of the game, going back and forth between that and the basketball after it started and his pitch count was extremely high, and he ended up going just five innings, even though he gave up just the one earned run, which was the solo shot by Bryce Harper. How did you think he looked in his return?
2: Yeah, I mean, he was effective from a run prevention standpoint. Like you said, one run, five innings. He had eight strikeouts. The problem was the pitch count. He threw 106 pitches over five innings, which is way too many. It was his first start off the 10-day injured list. It was also a start in which he was dueling with a guy who's having an excellent season in Zach Wheeler, although he did not do very well against the Nats on Tuesday night. They did a good job of getting to Wheeler. You know, with, with Max, it's always kind of relative. Like, most guys would kill for one run, five innings, eight strikeouts. Because it's Max, they're like, well, it's kind of disappointing he only lasted the five innings. But while he threw a lot of pitches, he did throw a lot of strikes. It's not like he was all over the place. He threw 70 strikes out of the 106 pitches. He only issued three walks. It was, you know, it was just a matter of, and this is kind of a, a, of a problem sometimes for guys who generate a lot of, high, uh, lot of strikeouts, it drives up the pitch count. Like Max struck out the side in a perfect bottom of the first, but uh, three strikeouts require a lot of pitches. So things like that, it kind of can work against you sometimes when you're a high strikeout guy. But overall, Max looked good. I mean, the, the net to pick with Max in recent years is that we started to see the body, I don't know if breakdown is the right phrase, but he's had some minor injuries pop up. You know, he's had multiple injured listings at this point, but he's still a great pitcher. And whereas last season he was good, but maybe not great, he's back to being great this season. I feel like that's kind of been an underappreciated thing. Max Scherzer is back to being Cy Young level Max Scherzer this season. We didn't know if he could still get to that level, but he's been at that level this year.
1: Uh, they're 70 games into their season. This last stretch, winning eight of nine, has really kept them you know, in the mix. Um, they could have easily been 9-10 out with a brutal schedule. I was talking to Tommy about this yesterday. After the Miami set this weekend, um, it's brutal. It's, it's the Mets for one game, but it's Tampa, it's the Dodgers, it's the Padres, it's the Giants, it's the Padres again. Um, but right now, you know, on June 23rd, with you know, still 92 games left, Who wins the National League East?
2: Right now, I still would say the Mets, just because I think they have a deeper lineup than what the Nationals have. And the Mets this season have authored a tremendous turnaround in terms of their team defense. The Mets have really gone in on analytics, and defensively they're much improved. Now, that said, one of the most stunning things about this National season is how much better defensively they've been. Yeah, yeah. And no one really can explain how or why this has happened. The Nats have been a really bad defensive team for years. They were last in the majors in defensive run save last season. The two position player acquisitions consequence this offseason are two guys who historically have not been good defensively in Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell. And yet the Nats have been great defensively. What we've seen with this recent surge of the Nats is this overall thing of run prevention really be heightened, where the Nationals' pitching has been excellent recently, even though Steven Strasburg and Daniel Hudson are on the 10-day injured list, and Scherzer just came off it. And the Nationals' defense, I mean, that's have been a top-five defensive team for most of the season, which is just a jaw-dropper. So that's the path to victory here, because the Nationals' offense cannot be trusted. The Nats don't score a lot of runs. They've been horrendous this season with the bases loaded. And while you have stretches of time in which different guys get hot, like obviously Kyle Schwarber recently, you know, someone like a Josh Harrison early in the season— You also don't have it to where everyone is going in the same direction at the same time. And it's just not an offense that night in, night out, you can have a lot of faith in scoring more than three runs. Uh, If it happens to to be that the offense gets better, great. But at this point, I mean, more than a third of the way into the season, I I think it's kind of pie in the sky to feel like all of a sudden things are just going to click offensively for the Nationals. So the, the road to victory is pitching and defense. The Nats have brought it big time lately in those regards and that's why they've been able to do as they've done. The other thing, of course, is the state of the division. It's not a very good division. Uh, this was supposed to be the best division of baseball. You could argue it's been the worst. And so the Nationals are right in the thick of this year. It may not be that you need, say, 92 wins to win this division. You may be able to win the division at 7-9. Like and eight, nine. Nine
1: 90. At 7-9, yeah, and, seven and nine. you might exactly. you might be able to win it at 7-9. and nine.
2: Yeah, um, Alex Smith maybe <laughs> can pitch for the Nationals.
1: Uh, will you stick around and have a Taylor Heineke conversation with me?
2: Absolutely.
1: All right. We'll do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast.
1: Al Galdi's sticking around uh, with us. By the way, I, I meant to mention that Galdi's also doing a Nats chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman and Tim Shovers. They do a, a post-game wrap on all Nats games. You can find that wherever you find uh, your podcast. So you know what time of year it is. It's that that time between you know the draft and... Whatever the OTA mini camp days are, I mean, I think it's a bunch of bullshit, most of it anyway. And, you know, we're still a month, you know, plus before training camp. So every single, you know, website, uh, sports website it, it is asking their NFL people to come up with lists and rankings, and you know projections, and who's going to be the surprise player. It's all the stuff that we try to come up with on the shows that we do this time of year, because it is a dead part of the NFL calendar, which there aren't many portions of the calendar that are dead when it comes to the NFL. So I found something that I did on radio this morning. And I did it because Al... I don't know if you have this sense, but there is definitely a hefty percentage—not majority—but a hefty percentage of the fan base that really believes that Tyler, that Taylor Heineke is the answer. Like they saw enough in that Tampa game; they saw enough in the fourth quarter against Carolina, the five quarters to believe. That Washington has found their starting quarterback, and then they put it together with some of the things that Ron Rivera's been talking about in terms of competition. I don't know what you've been saying on your podcast. I would put the chances of Ryan Fitzpatrick starting uh, day one at a hundred percent, like uh, injury, you know, notwithstanding. Um, uh, it, no injury, it's a hundred percent. I don't think that this is a legitimate competition. I think Ron. Has a culture that he's trying to change, and I think competition's a big part of it. And so I like the fact that he's speaking to that and selling it. Um, but they, their actions spoke to trying to find a starting quarterback when the season ended because they didn't think they had one. Now, it doesn't mean that, that Heineke can't turn into one, but I found this ranking of the top, uh, of, uh, a ranking of 1 to 32 of backup quarterbacks in the NFL. So, CBSSports.com, I forget who wrote the story. I'd have to go find it. Uh, Cody Benjamin wrote it. So, he was asked yesterday to come up with some content, NFL content. Yep. So, so he... So he ranked the NFL backup quarterbacks from one to thirty-two, which meant that he also had to guess on who the starters were gonna be, you know, in places where there might be a legitimate debate as to who the starters are gonna be, like or who the starter will be. Like in Denver, Teddy Bridgewater's there, so is Drew Locke. That's a competition. He projects Drew Locke to win that competition, so he had Teddy Bridgewater as a backup. But the interest in doing this, obviously, was to see where Taylor Heineke. Would land well. First of all, to make sure that they, they viewed Taylor Heineke as a backup and not a starter, like some people do. By the way, I haven't asked you. Do you agree with me on on Fitzpatrick or not, or do you have a different opinion on on Taylor Heineke's you know claim or maybe you know opportunity to win the starting job?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very likely Fitzpatrick is the week one starter. I actually had Joe Seisman on the most recent installment of my podcast, and we know how plugged in Joe is. He believes that Fitzpatrick will be the week one starter. I do think, though, with Heineke, you need to further explore this, and I don't want any sort of a dismissal of Heineke. I think he needs to be given an opportunity. Um, that's not to say that like, you know, you build everything around him or anything like that, but I'm glad to hear that Ron is talking up competition. And I think that at the very least, let's just see more of the movie here, you know, give Heineke, be open-minded to Heineke is, is what I want from Ron, because what he did against the Bucks was special, especially given all the things working against him in that game. And there's nothing wrong with just further exploring this, further probing this Heineke situation just to see where it might lead. And maybe it leads to nowhere, But I think you have to, the way the NFL works, weird stories like this happen. And so you can't just shut the door on it completely
1: to me if you're wrong. I totally agree with you. It's funny because um, in conversations recently, I've been very definitive about Ryan Fitzpatrick. I've been very definitive in my belief that when the season ended, while they were happy with what Taylor Heineke provided them and they were intrigued They also tried to trade for Matt Stafford. They also inquired about Sam Darnold and Derek Carr and maybe even Mitch Trubisky. They also considered trading up for Justin Fields or Trey Lance. So their actions really spoke to, we're looking for our starting quarterback. But that doesn't mean that they don't believe that Heineke can be something. And like me, I'm intrigued. It sounds like you are too. And somebody reminded me this morning, a caller or somebody on Twitter, Sheehan, you compared him to Jeff Garcia after the Tampa game, <laughs> and, I d- and I did. Now, I didn't compare him saying that he's going to be the Jeff Garcia, that he's going to become Jeff Garcia. I said stylistically he reminded me of Jeff Garcia. I thought that's, the w- that's what I thought of when I watched him, and, and I thought he played like Jeff Garcia. But I I was all in on, hey, I want to see more. Bring this guy back. He may not be a starter, but – He's a gamer, and in a pinch, you know, he's a backup, you know, maybe in this league. Anyway, back to the list. Um, The ranking of backup quarterbacks, 1 through 32. The first thing is I wanted to make sure that Taylor Heineke was actually viewed as a backup quarterback. I mean, Sabah called in this morning. She was waiting, as she usually is, at 545 a.m., waiting for me to go to any sort of call segment. Um, (laughs) And she believes that Taylor Heineke will be the starter. So I wanted to make sure... That Taylor Heineke was being viewed as a backup, which he was, thankfully. And then I thought to myself before I started to look at the list, I'm going to guess that he's somewhere around 15. In terms of backup quarterbacks. that He'll be in the top half of the league of backup quarterbacks. But Al, I'm always interested to see what the rest of the NFL, um, you know, uh, the analysts and the writers and the reporters, what they think. And by the way, speaking of Sabah, one of the things that she mentioned to me, and it's true, all of the discussion about this football team in the offseason has been mostly positive. Like I don't know that we've had an off season like this. The defense elite top 5, maybe the best. You know, the additions of of Jackson and Samuel. What a hell of a free agency class. What a great draft to get Sam Cosme and their starting middle linebacker and maybe a receiver. Like I've not heard this much optimism or encouraging discussion about the team in a long, long time. I would say 2013 is the last time going into that season, and you had a major injury at the quarterback position. But anyway, he is listed on uh, the list of backup quarterbacks. Have you seen this list? No, I haven't. I'm interested so, where, it. so where do you guess he is? Heineke...
2: Well, what he did against the Bucks got a lot of attention. So I'll say I'll say tenth. I'll say top ten.
1: Okay. So my guess was fifteen, somewhere around there, no better than ten. But I do think um, that probably there's a significant part of the fan base that thinks, Oh, well, he's gonna be, you know, he's gonna be one of the first two or three backup quarterbacks mentioned. Don't you get that sense that there are a lot of, of people, especially the people that think he should start, that they're not expecting if they if they open up this, this list to see him any lower than five or six?
2: Yeah, you know what's interesting, though? My perception is a little different. I've actually sensed that a lot of people are not believers in Heineke, because what I've heard a million times is, this is Rex Grossman, John Beck all over again, Heineke and Kyle Allen, and so... You know, neither guy is a road to anywhere meaningful. But I'm interested to hear where he ranked on this list.
1: I've had a lot of that, too. But I think that there are a lot of people, again, not majority, but a lot of people that are big believers. All right. So I'll count them down from one to 32. Um, Number one is Trey Lance. So they've got Garoppolo as the starter and Trey Lance as a backup. Now, I don't know how you rank a guy that you've never seen play, but it's based on a projection. So Lance was one, and Justin Fields was two, even though I think everybody in Chicago um, will will go into cardiac arrest if they see Andy Dalton on the field to start the season. They all want Justin yep. Fields to start the season. Who knows if he'll be ready? Number three is Teddy Bridgewater, with Drew Locke projected to be the starter in Denver. Number four is Jacoby Brissett. He is the backup in Miami to Tuatunga-Vailoa. Jacoby Brissett is ahead of Taylor Heineke. Case Keenum is ahead of Taylor Heineke. He is Baker Mayfield's backup in Cleveland. Tyrod Taylor, well, he could be the starter depending on Deshaun Watson's availability in Houston, but assuming Watson plays, Tyrod Taylor is number six. On the list of 32 backup quarterbacks in the NFL. Number seven is Jordan Love. Now, obviously, that that assumes that Aaron Rodgers is the number one. I know we have never seen Trey Lance or Justin Fields throw a ball in the NFL. We also have not seen Jordan Love. Throw a football in the NFL, and we've been told that there's, you know, some great fear if Jordan Love ends up starting. Like the Packers are going to go four and thirteen in a seventeen game season. They've got him seventh.
2: I think I think that's ridiculous. What has he done to earn that spot? And like you just said, the word is that he has not looked good. And so I don't know how you justify putting him seventh.
1: Well, he's done no more and no less than the two rookies I've already mentioned. Um, Marcus Mariota, who I would have thought would have been much higher on this list. He is still, by the way, for those that didn't follow the offseason in Las Vegas, even though there was a lot of chatter about him getting traded, even for like a load, you know, a five or six or a seventh round pick because of his contract, but he is still backing up Derek Carr in Vegas. He's eighth. And then the other quarterback that isn't the obvious starter like Zach Wilson and Trevor Lawrence are in Jacksonville and New York, Mac Jones is nine in New England as a backup to Cam Newton. So the three rookie quarterbacks that aren't presumed starters are all ahead of Taylor Heineke. And a guy that's never played before in the NFL, Jordan Love, is ahead of Taylor Heineke on this list. Well, we're approaching, you know, the ten through fifteen. He's got to be in this next group of players. Gardner Minshew's ten. Taysom Hill is eleven behind Jameis Winston, who, by the way, to me, just as an aside, it's one of the more intriguing stories of the NFL season. I think there's a chance Jameis Winston resurrects his career and becomes. Not an elite quarterback, but a really good quarterback under under Sean Payton. That's a hell of a football team, too, if Winston is the answer. Mitch Trubisky is 12, behind Josh Allen in Buffalo. Here's a beauty. 13 is Kellen Mond. A wow. third-round rookie who's never taken wow. a snap, who, by the way, I don't think is very good, is backing up Kirk Cousins. He's ahead of Taylor Heineke. Then you get Chad Henne in Kansas City at 14, and Mason Rudolph in Pittsburgh at 15. Al, your wife That's is it, it, your wife is a big Pittsburgh fan, so you follow it. I think Mason Rudolph stinks.
2: He's been horrible when he's played. That's a joke. This list is losing credibility by the second,
1: but continue. Mike Glennon is 16. For those that don't know, he's backing up Daniel Jones in New York because Colt McCoy, who comes in 17th on this list, is out in Arizona backing up Kyler Murray. Colt McCoy is ranked higher on the list. Now, remember, a few years ago, Colt McCoy was way up the list on you yeah. know backup quarterback rankings. Chase Daniel, who's had one of the more fascinating careers in NFL history for a guy that really hasn't done anything but keeps getting paid and keeps landing somewhere, he must be the greatest dude of all time. Chase Daniel is in L.A. as Justin Herbert's backup for the Chargers. He comes in at 18. And Notice
2: it, how many of these guys are former Washington quarterbacks. I know. Well,
1: anyway. Chase Daniel was actually the undrafted free agent for Washington in 2009, even though I don't yeah. think he ever suited up for, for Washington. Taylor Heineke at 19. There we go. And here's what's written. He's got fight and athleticism as displayed in an emergency postseason start for Alex Smith in 2020. He's only started one other game in his career, two games, so don't get carried away. Flashes in Minnesota and Carolina suggest he's got talent to stick. After him, Jacob Eason, John Wolford, Brandon Allen, Joe Flacco, who's in Philadelphia, Blaine Gabbert, P.J. Walker, Geno Smith, A.J. McCarron, Trace McSorley, Tim Boyle, Cooper Rush, who's Dallas's backup, and then two dudes I swear to God I've never heard of. James Morgan is, is the backup in New York for the Jets. Never heard of him. And Logan Woodside is Ryan Tannehill's backup in Tennessee. Um, not a lot of love for Taylor Heineke on the rankings of the top 32 backup quarterbacks. One national perspective, I warn everybody as I do whenever I do this stuff, it doesn't mean anything. It means absolutely nothing other than to gauge sort of the perspective from outside the market of what they think of your backup quarterback in this particular case.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would. So I would certainly take exception with Kellen Mond. I would certainly take exception with a uh, few of the others, like you know, even like someone like a Case Keenum. Uh, you know, I don't know that you can justify necessarily him being ahead of Heineke. And I would say this, and look, it's one game. I think we all understand that, but. If you ranked each guy's best game uh, out of those quarterbacks you just went through, Heineke's game against the Bucks is, what, top five, maybe number one? Like, how many guys have demonstrated an ability to play at that high of a level in that big of a spot? And it's one game. Everyone understands that. The sample size is small. But the fact that he has shown that he can play at that level in that moment, I think, says something. And, again, it's just worthy of further exploration you know, what, I don't know if you talk about this, but what Ken Zampisi said about Heineke during all those you know, press conferences yeah. over the last few weeks, right. where he gets asked about Heineke. And look, I know he's the quarterback's coach, like he's not going to shred Heineke. But, you know, he gets asked, well, what's the, what's the way that Heineke can show that he's not a flash in a pan? And he says, stay on the field. That's it. You know, just stay healthy. And that's the thing. If, if there was some magic wand we could wave that could guarantee – That he won't get hurt. Because that's been the thing. He's been hurt a ton. He got hurt during OTA practices, right? He got cut up with the stitches. But if you could guarantee that he doesn't get hurt, to what extent would that change the way we view things here of, well, if he's going to stay healthy, there is something to him. Like he can play the position. He has this incredible relationship with Scott Turner. He knows the offense. He can run. He's gutsy. He's got moxie. You know, maybe there's limited arm strength, but. I think that there is something with this guy. And the dismissal of him by some, I just am like, that's ridiculous. Be open-minded to him. That's all.
1: Yeah, I think that's a reasonable position. And that was my position after watching the Tampa game. I think the Tampa game gets blown up a little bit. I'm sure on this list, you know, Marcus Mariota and Tyrod Taylor and, you know, Case Keenum and Teddy Bridgewater have had, you know, great games, you know, as starters during the course of their career. Um, I mean, hell, Mitch Trubisky was, you know, having at one point in that year when they went 13 and 3 or 12 and 4, you know, a a Pro Bowl uh, kind of year, even though I think he stinks. I, I just, the Buccaneer games were so interesting to me because he was really good. And he was really good considering that, you know, he was starting a playoff game, um, something, by the way, Ryan Fitzpatrick's never done. And he throws for 300 yards and. He also took some bad sacks when they actually had a chance with the ball. You know, he threw a pick in the game. They had multiple chances, you know, with the ball to take the lead or to tie the game late, and it didn't happen. Like, it didn't happen at the end of the Carolina game either. So, I don't know. I – I love the way he played in that game. I love the way he played in the Carolina game. And and part of it is because we were watching a guy essentially on one leg with veterans, you know, guile and experience and leadership, you know, play well enough, but really not physically capable of doing it. And then we see Taylor, Taylor Heineke come in, and all of a sudden the ball's being pushed down the field, you know, consistently, and he's taking chances, and he's running around, and he's making plays. I'm intrigued. I'm glad they re-signed him, But I think their actions, Al, speak louder than anything else that any of us can say. They desperately sought a starting quarterback in the offseason, whether it was for this year or for the medium to long-term future. They did not think when the season ended that Taylor Heineke was their quarterback of the future. If they were convinced of it, they wouldn't have taken the actions that they took.
2: Right. And and it would have been malpractice to think that because you would have been operating just off the one game. I think the contract they gave Heineke says a lot, too. Yes, it's a two year deal, but there's so little guaranteed money in that deal. He's he's incredibly cuttable. So, um, and, and, you know, and and let's be honest, the fact that he took that deal right away, that he didn't say, hey, let me see what can happen for me as a restricted free agent, I think he recognized, all right, there probably isn't going to be that great of a market for me. I know Scott Turner. I'm comfortable here. Let me resign here and go. I would make this point though about the Bucks game. Uh, there was a lot working against him in that game too. Not just that you know that was his first uh, start for the Washington team. You know he had just signed with the team a month earlier, but. Facing a great defense in that of Tampa Bay's, I know the Bucks were missing a key player, but the, still, they're their best player. defense,
1: their best right. player okay. defensively. Yeah. But,
2: wa- Washington had no running game in that game. Gibson and McKissick did nothing in that game. Washington had a ton of drops in that game. It was it was one drop after another. There was a terrible no call uh, on a Cam Sims uh, target in the first half too. So like there was his numbers in that game were good. They should be even better if not for just the drops. Like forget about everything else. If you don't have all the drops that you had in that game, so I think that. Kind of gets forgotten too. Yeah, and no, he I, gets he gets hurt and he comes back into the game and throws yeah. a touchdown pass to Stephen Sims. So, like that was great
1: too. He played he played a great game. I'm not disputing that. I think I think the the conversation about that game in general has. Um, almost become something you know that isn't even doesn't even resemble it like a lot of people like to say they took the the, the eventual champions to the brink um, they played them tougher than anybody else which is not true green bay you know score wise was closer and the saints were tied in the fourth quarter with tampa and had a legitimate chance you know the funny thing about that game in watching it i remember one of the first things i said the day after or the monday morning after or whenever it was I never really thought they could win the game in watching it. You know, first of all, the reason that they didn't win the game is their defense let them down in a major way. And their best defensive player was not good in the game, Chase Young. You know, anytime you give up 500-plus yards and 31 points in a game – you're not going to win most of those games, and they didn't win that game. They lost that game because of their defense, first and foremost, and the defense proved that day that it wasn't what some thought it was, which was elite. Um, It was a good defense. It was an improved defense, and I think it'll be even better this year, hopefully. Of course, they're going to face much better teams and much better quarterbacks last year. The seven wins, five of them came against backup or third-string quarterbacks. But anyway, everybody knows that. Um... And then I think, you know, Devin White proved the rest of the way that he was not only the best defensive player on the team, he may have played at the highest level of any defensive player in the postseason. And he would have been a major factor in that game. But still, they wouldn't have been in that game. Totally admit this. They would not have been anywhere near having a chance or being in the game score-wise without Taylor Heineke. It's true. And um, so I'll I'll never take that away from them. But you know we 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 have it, we we've lived with this. Well, we beat the eventual Super Bowl champions. Remember that y- stretch of like three or four years where yeah. like yeah. they beat the Packers, they won the Super Bowl, they beat the Giants twice. One of those years, the last loss, like taking pride in that is just stupid, and it's just loser talk. Um, Tampa, they they pushed Tampa. They did. They pushed them, but New Orleans and Green Bay pushed them more. And New Orleans and Green Bay had legitimate chances to win the game. I never felt watching that game, even when they when it was a one-score game, and they had the ball twice in a one-score game. I just didn't really ever feel like they would win it. If they had have won it, or if they'd gotten to overtime on that final drive in thirty-one thirty-one overtime, Al, and somehow that you know they lost the coin toss. And Brady went down the field and scored a touchdown and ended it on the first drive in overtime. I think I, 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 if Heineke had gotten it done and, and gotten the two point conversion, it'd be a different you know discussion. But that game, winnable, barely, barely winnable. Tampa Bay was the better team.
2: Oh yeah, much yeah. better team. I, I just I just remember what was said going into that game of Taylor Heineke. <laughs> give me a break. You know, this is going to be another one of these playoff games in which the team starts a right. backup or a third stringer and the team has no chance. And he spit in the face of that to where it's at least a conversation, maybe it's not true, but it's at least a conversation that Heineke authored the best opposing team quarterback performance against the Bucks last postseason. That can be debated, but just the fact that you can say that and not be laughed out of the room, I think, says a ton about the job he did that night.
1: Yep. And Devin White created absolute mayhem against the Saints and the Packers um, and the Chiefs in the next three games. But I want to make sure that I'm clear on this. I, I, I totally agree with Al. And I've said it since the day after that game. I wanted him re-signed. I want to see what he has. I'm intrigued. There was a lot there to like. And the bottom line was, you know, in the moment, we didn't have anybody. I mean, no. it wasn't going to be Alex Smith, and who knows about Kyle Allen. By the way, I, I've not asked you about that, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. you've talked about it on your podcast, just yeah, the look. whole dismissal, um, the dispatching by Ron Rivera on Ben's podcast of Kyle Allen. I, that was I a shock to me. I, I don't know the I answer.
2: Yeah, I think it's fascinating, and... Uh, you know, to the people, because I've gotten some of this of, oh, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Because we know to make a big deal out of this, because one of the things we've already learned about Ron Rivera is how he talks about people matters. This is how we talked about Kyle Smith. This is how we talked about Alex Smith. And now he's talking about Kyle Allen this way. And we saw what happened to Alex Smith and Kyle Smith. Um, I think, first of all, it is, it is such an indictment of the way Ron must think of the way Alex Smith performed last year. Last December, Ron gets asked, would you be here if not for Alex Smith? Ron says, yeah, if Kyle Allen was healthy. And now a few months later, Ron won't even include Kyle in the quarterback competition. What does that tell you about what Ron thought about what Alex did last year? I just get a kick out of that. You know, it, it certainly doesn't seem to be injury related because I know that's come up of, well, Kyle's coming off an injury. Well, yeah, but he was practicing during the mini camp, and Ron was given a chance by Ben to say, well, you know, Kyle Allen's coming off injury. Ron didn't say that. Ron, in fact, when he gets asked about Kyle Allen, deflects and, and pivots to something else. That's right. So I, I don't, it, it's very odd. I don't know if something happened behind the scenes. I don't know if they're not pleased with what Kyle is doing or saying. You know, it, it kind of reeks to the Morgan Moses thing of there, it, it feels like there's more to this than we know. But there's something to this, to to where he keeps positioning this as a two-man competition. He won't even say Kyle Allen's name. The, the way, by the way, and this is another thing that cracks me up. I don't know if you've noticed this. He won't say Dwayne Haskins' name. Whenever he talks about how he should have had a quarterback <laughs> yeah. competition last time, he will not... He will not say Dwayne Haskins' name. Years ago, Bill Parcells would not say Terrell Owens' name. He would call him the player. I'm waiting for Ron to start doing that with Haskins. He will not say Haskins' name. That's another thing that makes me laugh right now. But, yeah, man, it feels like something happened. And Ron has soured on Kyle Allen, which is nuts to me because it felt like Kyle Allen was the new Colt McCoy. As Colt was to Jay, Kyle was to Ron. And that certainly does not seem to be the case right now.
1: I don't, I, I don't have an answer for it either. Um, the Morgan Moses thing, I, I think I have an answer for it. Number one, I know that they loved Cosme before the draft, and they were hopeful of getting him. And I think that they are already, um, already feel justified in having drafted him in the second round. And I think Morgan. You know, from what I've you know learned from various people, Morgan—they loved him as a player, and we all loved him because he played hurt and he was a good player. Um, but they want to be younger, they want to be better, and they want guys that are totally bought in to the way they do things. And I think Morgan is one of those guys that always has like a better idea of how to do something. <laughs> Yeah, yep. no, no. I, yep. I like that idea. But what about if we do a coach this way? Um, <laughs> and I think right. ultimately, it's like, okay, we're, we're we're getting guys that are 100% drinking the Kool-Aid here. And that's what we want. Um, by the way, on your Ken Zampezi thing, um, I thought it was interesting, too, that the first thing he said was health. But I also wonder if, you know, um, if that's just the first thing that pops into anybody's mind about Taylor Heineke. Well, he's got to stay healthy. And I don't know that it doesn't mean that Ken Zampezi and Scott Turner and Ron Rivera don't also see other limitations. I think that that's yeah. just the obvious thing to say. And by the way, it gets you you know off the hook of describing any, any of the other limitations, which he has to have somehow – if not, he would have been in the league the last seven years.
2: Yes, and yes, and, and we know coaches say things in press conferences, so you can't just take what they say as gospel. If you listen, though, to what Zampezi said in its entirety, he says Heineke needs to stay on the field, and then he gushes over the way Heineke played last year. Right. It's not unlike the way Ron recently has essentially gushed over Heineke. I mean, Ron has really praised Heineke, he, called, you know, he calls him an extremely accurate passer. Now, Ron also keeps praising Ryan Fitzpatrick. So, you know, it's clear Fitzpatrick is still the favorite. But Vampisi has made it a point to praise Heineke. Ron has made it a point to praise Heineke. So they do seem to really think that there's something to him. You know, how much of a something we'll see. The actions will tell us everything. If, if he doesn't get a single first-team practice rep in training camp, then a lot of this ends up being mostly talk, especially if Fitzpatrick does as he's supposed to do, and that's do well enough in camp in the preseason to be the week one starter. But I've always wanted wanted a competition. We'll see if we actually get one. But I'd like to think that there is at least a potential path here for Heineke to, to be the starter if Fitzpatrick falters and if Heineke does well enough to earn the job. And it seems, the way Ron's talking, that there is that path. I I don't know that it ever gets realized, but there is that, path.
1: I just want a quarterback. You know, like if Matt Uh, Stafford were here and there would be no competition, I would be so much happier. You know, um, I just had this one thought about Kyle Allen. You know, you just mentioned first-team reps. Well, you know, Heineke didn't get any in OTAs or minicamp. Not one um, rep with any of the starters. Um, But. The word was that he looked, you know, that they were impressed with him, you know, against second and third teamers, whatever. I think maybe, and just I just had this thought. Scott Turner wants to stretch the field, by the way, just like his pop always wanted to stretch the field, and he couldn't do that last year, in part because some of the teams they were playing just wouldn't allow for the protection to hold up. You know, when they played Baltimore and even the Rams, I mean, the ball was coming out quickly and sideways, but that was good. I mean, I thought Scott Turner adapted against the teams he faced, but what Taylor Heineke did is he threw the ball down the field. Kyle Allen didn't really do that necessarily. You know, they ran the ball in their win over the Cowboys that he started. The Giants game, he was good, but he also had the back-breaking pick. I think that they love that that Heineke is a playmaker and that he will take chances and throw the ball down the field and probably plays more like Ryan Fitzpatrick than Kyle Allen does. And maybe in their mind he's just the number two because he is much more like Fitzpatrick.
2: Yeah, Heineke does come off like a younger Fitzpatrick, yeah. and Heineke obviously brings to the table something that neither guy brings in abundance, which is speed. Now, each guy can move a little bit. Fitzpatrick actually can move more than I think he gets credit for. and We saw Allen do some things from a mobility standpoint, but Heineke's legs really are weapons, and I think that's a big factor uh, as well. And, I, I, you know, going back to that Bucs game real quick, that was another thing that stood out about that game. It wasn't just that Heineke played well, it's that he was throwing to pass catchers who were like, screaming wide open for so much of the game that that was a night that I, I think for a lot of people was like hey Scott Turner does kind of know uh, what he's
1: doing I think here. he does he,
2: he, yeah he schemed it up well against Todd Bowles that night
1: I think he did it a lot of the year I think that just you know they had limitations a quarterback you know in a lot of those games yep. um, but I thought he did it a lot of the year I mean I think a lot of the year watching games there were receivers open and you know what There's something about Norv, just thinking about Norv, especially Norv as a coordinator. People were always open. You know, Jay Gruden schemed people open. You know, there are certain guys that can do that, you know, even with, you know, less quality receivers. And they've got more quality, you know, this year, hopefully. Um, Thanks for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you're doing well uh al Galdi's podcast get it wherever you get a podcast he's doing the Nats chat thing with our good friend tim shovers and mark zuckerman um i appreciate it
2: i enjoy it man thank you so much for having me on
1: all right let's do it again soon al Galdi. everybody uh i will talk about the lone nba game last night and have a pick on tonight's game when we return right after these words from a few of our sponsors Last night um, in the NHL, the Montreal Canadiens, who were the last team to make the playoffs point-wise, beat Las Vegas four to one to take a three-two series lead in that semifinal series in the Stanley Cup playoffs. A friend of mine, um, let's just say a friend of mine who lives offshore, texted me after the game was over, which didn't help me much, that there was essentially 90% of the public money was on Vegas last night. They could not make a money line attractive enough to get anybody to bet on Montreal, meaning that literally last night, almost every bookmaker in America. Now hockey doesn't get bet at the same level that the NFL or college football or even the NBA or college basketball gets bet. But last night, I guarantee you there were bookmakers all over the country, legal and illegal, that were praying for Montreal to win that game. And they did, 4-1. to one. Uh, They will probably be a massive underdog in Game 6 tomorrow night at home. Um, but it is interesting, the hockey playoffs. Like The Canadians were the, the, the last team in, essentially, into the postseason, and they are a game away from the Stanley Cup Finals. And then there was the NBA game from last night. Uh, Phoenix, LA, Game 2 of the Western Conference Finals. The Suns won Game 1, and they won Game 2 last night, 104-103. I'm not going to do a breakdown of the game. I'll just because I want to get to something that I learned about the NBA last night that I didn't know before. I will tell you that Patrick Beverly's defense on Devin Booker was phenomenal, and there were far too many replay reviews in this game. I have no idea how long the game lasted. It seemed like it was three hours plus. Anyway, at the end of this game, with the Clippers leading 103-102, By the way, after Paul George choked on two free throws, missed both of them, that would have given the Clippers a three-point lead. The Suns ended up with the ball underneath their own basket with nine-tenths of a second left, down 103-102. to And that set the stage for something that I didn't know about the NBA um, rulebook. Um, And maybe some of you did. I did not know. I was surprised. Mark Jackson on the broadcast last night knew the rule. Down pat it, down down pat. He knew it and said it right away. Um, What it was was a pass from out of bounds from Jay Crowder, a lob to the rim with nine-tenths of a second left. By the way, nine-tenths of a second left. You can catch and shoot it. So they could have run a play for Devin Booker to take a jump shot to try to win the game. They ran a great play, a back screen from Devin Booker for DeAndre Ayton for a lob at the rim. The ball ended up right above the rim. DeAndre Ayton took it and just guided it home for the game winner. 104-103, the Suns win the game. But it looked to me, and I think a lot of people watching it, that it was offensive goaltending. The Clippers players were going nuts. That's goaltending. That's offensive goaltending. The ball was in the cylinder, which it was. And in any other situation, it would have been called offensive goaltending and the bucket would have been waved off and the Clippers would have won the game. But the rule book states, and I did not know this, that there can be no offensive goaltending off of an inbounds pass. And Phoenix knew the rule. And the coaching instruction from Monty Williams after he set up a great back screen to set up the play for DeAndre Ayton, by the way, as an aside, you always switch every screen with less than five seconds left, and the Clippers didn't for some reason, which left DeAndre Ayton sort of open for the lob at the rim. He said to his team, doesn't matter, put it right over the rim, there's no goaltending on a play like this. DeAndre, take it, slam it through. And that's what happened. Everybody's screaming offensive goaltending. I'm watching the game going, well, that's going to be waved off. That's offensive goaltending. And it wasn't. They knew the rule. By the way, I give Mark Jackson a lot of credit on the ESPN call. He immediately said, there's no offensive goaltending on an inbounds pass. He knew the rule. Good for him. Uh, But I learned something last night. Had no idea. Great that the coach of the team knew it. Designed a great play. By the way, the reason they were able to design this play, although I'm sure they've worked on it in practice, but there was a replay review of who the ball got knocked off of and out of bounds, which gave them like two minutes to, you know, get the play down and make sure everybody was aware of the rule. Um, the Suns won 104-103. Chris Paul didn't play last night, still in COVID protocol. Kawhi Leonard didn't play. Um, the Clippers have been down 2 nothing in each of their previous two series, and they won. I don't think they can beat Phoenix without Kawhi returning, and I have no idea if he will. Uh, tonight's game, Milwaukee, is a 7.5-point favorite. In game one over the Hawks, after both of these teams won dramatic game sevens over the weekend and they got proper rest um, time. Um, I like Milwaukee to hammer Atlanta in game one tonight. I think that Atlanta's just happy to be there. Look, Milwaukee is there also um, with Giannis, and Giannis coming off his signature career game in the Game 7 win over the Nets. But I like Milwaukee big tonight, laying 7.5. All right? Um, That's it for the show. Uh, Back tomorrow, uh, not with Tom. Tom's taking tomorrow off. Tom will be with me on Thursday. Uh, I am uh, efforting to get another guest to join us on the show tomorrow. Have a great day.